especially in the federal government and a lot of these agencies where a lot of the software does still run on-prem, um, that's a pretty big problem. And Log4j was a great example of that, where anybody running anything with Java um, you know, had to go around and manually email their vendors to figure out if Log4j was in there and what version, and if they were affected, and then what to do about it. They had no idea. Um, folks didn't even you know, know what language it was in, and there were some hilarious stories on Twitter of like, you know, the, the maintainer of curl. Um, was getting spammed with emails from vendors demanding he respond on whether curl had log4j inside of it um it's not even written in the right programming language for that but you know folks were just panicking emailing everyone they could because they had no idea welcome to the reimagining cyber podcast where we share short and to the point perspectives on the cyber landscape it's all about engaging yet casual conversations on what organizations are doing to reimagine their cyber programs while ensuring their business objectives are top priority with my co-host, Stan Wisselman, Head of Security Strategist. I'm Rob Borrego, Chief Security Strategist, and this is Reimagining Cyber. So Stan, who do we have joining us for this episode? Rob, our guest today is Dan Lawrence. Dan is the founder and CEO of ChainGuard, Inc. And Dan is also a former Googler who has been deeply involved with a number of projects focused on mitigating software supply chain security risk like the Sigstore project and the supply chain levels of software artifacts are better known as Salsa. Dan has been involved with the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. He chaired the Continuous Delivery Foundation Technical Oversight Committee and sits on the governing board of the Technical Advisory Committee for the Open Source Security Foundation. Dan, you don't have any time to sleep, man. You are involved in so much. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners about your background? I think I forgot about some of those until you said it. Um, no, <laughs> thank you. Um, no, I, th I think you covered it pretty well there. It's great to see how active you are. I'm not that, I don't have that much energy anymore. Um, and, you know, as, as you are, everybody is well aware, we've had a, a number of high profile incidents associated with supply chain of software. And um, it certainly heightened that awareness uh, of the need to protect against threats targeting the intentional injection of malicious code into software dependencies. And I'd like to start with asking you about you know, your work on the Salsa framework and my understanding, and, and, and granted, I have not had a, a deep level of involvement with Salsa, but it's an end-to-end -end framework trying to help developers ensure that the integrity of their artifacts around software from source code to the build process and you know other mechanisms in the development of software have integrity. Um, how did Salsa get started at Google? And you know, why do you think this approach of, of mitigating intentional threats to the software supply chain can work? Sure. Um, yeah, so the, the Salsa project or uh, supply chain levels or software artifacts is what that stands for, um, was started uh, at Google with you know, some of my colleagues. Um, it's not brand new. None of the ideas in there are really new. It's just kind of set up in this incremental way that we put some time into thinking about and then published. But um, it's really, you know, if you read it, there's a bunch of levels and a bunch of requirements and a, you know, a bunch of kind of random seeming things that all tie together. But um, it really ties back to one core principle and then thinking through how you apply that principle to modern software development. Um, and that principle is basically two-party review or multi-party review for anything that can affect you know, the end result, the end piece of software, the end binary, the end deliverable, the end container, um, anything like that. Um, and you can write that one principle down, but then when you start thinking about it, um, you know, that applies to the source code coming in at first. And cool, you know, most people do you know, source code review today. 
Um, it also applies to the tools used, right? If you if you compromise a compiler or you know one person gets to choose the compiler that gets used, doesn't matter how many folks reviewed the code, you know that that compiler is the one in charge of producing the executable. So then you apply that to the compiler, and you have to kind of declare your build environment, and you have to have multiple people review that too, and then you have to operate it in a secure manner, so one person can't just you know bypass all those controls. And that one principle extrapolated to you know package managers and CI systems and everything is kind of how you end up at all the requirements in the Salsa framework. You think it makes an impact? I mean, as far as actually implementing that kind of approach? Yeah, I think it's the only way to make an impact. Um, you know, and this kind of goes all the way back to um, kind of what, you know, the birth of software supply chain security or the, the kind of birth of the field, which was um, Ken Thompson's you know, famous paper from 1984, uh, Reflections on Trusting Trust, where he basically points out you can't trust computers, you can't trust tools, you have to trust people. And people are hard to trust, especially in open source. And, um, you know, you, you can never trust anybody completely. And so the next best thing is make sure that you're having multiple people check each other's work. And, you know, you see a huge difference from, you know, unilateral, um, you know, access one person being able to do anything on their own to two-party review, right? That's the biggest jump you can make. You can, you can go farther, right? You can stretch it to three, you can stretch it to four people, but you start to get incremental benefits past that. Um, you know, the likelihood of compromising one account through phishing or something like that is... Uh, you know, way higher than two accounts or something like that that happen to be cooperating on a team or you know, um, next to each other. So it's really about nothing is perfect. Um, the only real way to do this is by increasing that number of people that have to be compromised or hacked or something from one to two to three to something like that, and then applying that recursively. So Dan, you know, we continue to see the attacks on the software artifacts, right? Impacting supply chains. We've been kind of touching upon that a little bit. But outside of the main headlines, you know, kind of solar winds that everyone continuously looks back at, you know, what are some of the other examples that you see out there that's been prevalent? Yeah, I mean, those are kind of the I mean, solar winds was kind of the big kickoff, right? I've been worrying about this space for a while, back to like 2016 or 2017. And for those first couple of years, nobody really cared. Nobody was really too worried about it. Um, we saw, if we're focusing on just integrity, kind of solar winds is where it really did start to jump off. Um, but software supply chain security in general is a couple of different problems rolled into one, right? There's that integrity one of folks uh, getting um, access to build machines, compromising artifacts, that kind of thing. There's a separate one, though, which is the quality um, problem. And so we've seen some waves of that in the past. I mean, the, the huge example there is, you know, Log4Shell, um, Log4J. That one was on the one-year anniversary of SolarWinds almost to the day, I think. And, um, you know, those two together get lumped together into the supply chain security category, but they're very, very different, right? One, you can't even call Log4J an attack or Log4Shell an attack. It was just a bug that was unintentional sitting around for a decade. And then folks tried to attack it when they found out about it, but very different than the SolarWinds style APT, nation state targets a company actually does attack them and inserts some malware. Those are the big two, um, at least in the past couple of years, but we see more and more. Um, and I think it's a reflection somewhat on us getting decent at other forms of security. Um, phishing is getting harder now that MFA is you know, becoming prevalent. Um, we're using HTTPS everywhere finally. If you remember using the internet, you know, five, 10 years ago, you know, a lot of websites still didn't have certificates that were valid. Folks were sending passwords in plain text to their banks at Starbucks over the Wi-Fi kind of thing. Um, so you know, we've gotten good enough at hardening a lot of these other attack points and the supply chain is becoming the most attractive way for attackers now. Hey, Dan, one of the attacks I hear about is typo squatting. Can you expand for our, our listeners what that means? Sure. Yeah. Typo squatting. That's a really sinister one because it's almost more of a form of social engineering. And you know, like I said, <laughs> multi-party review, people are the answer. People are also the problem, right? We are the weakest link. 
Um, type of squatting is a, a tactic. It's you know been used all, in all sorts of areas, uh, but it, it keeps happening in open source and in software supply chains, where an attacker will take a popular package, something that you know, um, some library that a lot of folks use, and then kind of push a version with a slight change in the name, whether it's a typo or you know even something more innocuous like inserting a hyphen in the middle or something when you don't know exactly how the word is supposed to be spelled. Um, and then try to trick folks into downloading that other version. Um, you know, you can see it with swapping out like a Unicode character. So, you know, even if you're reading it, you can't tell it's a typo. It's actually just a different character or something in there. Or you see, you know, folks just change or reorder the words or something like that. In my time at Google, we saw it happen all the time with libraries we publish on like RubyGems or PyPy or something like that, where it'd be called something like GCP hyphen client hyphen library or something. And then somebody would immediately publish like Google Cloud hyphen client library. And like, it's not a typo. And if you're just an end user, how are you supposed to know which the correct right, one right. is? Um, it's really just kind of an attack on naming being hard and imprecise and more social engineering to trick folks into installing something like that. So There's no real known solution to that really today. It right. really keeps happening. And you mentioned the different levels in salsa. I mean, what what is the 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 difference between the different levels and how do you know you see organizations pursuing a particular level? Do they they try to go all the way to the right to like a level four or do they shoot for you know moderate, you know, two or three? Yeah, it really depends. Um, we broke those levels down uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, salsa was actually based on an internal framework we had at Google. Um, it's been written about on you know a couple of white papers, uh, but um, it was kind of those same principles, but applied inside of Google's environment. Um, and Google's environment was a lot different, so we couldn't just kind of copy paste and apply those same things outside. But um, Google's environment was based around a single giant mono repo. A lot of folks have heard about where all the code is in one massive repository for the entire company, and it uses a version of the uh, it's open source. It's called Bazel, the compiler, but internally it's called Blaze. Um, where everything is built from source and kind of one step using that uh, tool. So there's no intermediate packages that get checked out or fetched anywhere. Everything goes straight from source to production. And so those same principles are a little bit easier to apply in that environment than if you have you know intermediate packages getting published by one person and downloaded and then turned into another binary and then that gets turned into a container or something by a third person. Uh, that's where it started. And you know that was also set up that same way with four different levels, and um, they're kind of set up that way for teams to plan and folks to be able to take an incremental approach and recognize the fact that not everyone needs to be at the highest level. Um, so it's a great tool for you know CISOs and you know, um, technical leaders to be able to set goals uh, for their team and have it decoupled enough where the team gets to figure out the how and they just get to set the what. Like you know next year, ninety percent of our critical loads have to be at level three. And you know, folks have 12 months to then go figure out what the best build system they want to use is and how they want to get to that level on their own without kind of making all of those decisions for folks. So I think, you know, right now we are seeing it a lot. We're seeing folks grab it and they love that concept of I can just pick a number and a target and let folks, you know, figure out how to get there on their own. And then we'll see it go up over time. I think level four is a pretty big jump today. If you actually look at the requirements from level three, I think that's where the, the first wall really gets hit. Mm. Um, to put it simply in words, like uh, level one is basically use a build system. That's kind of how I think about it. Don't do builds on people's laptops. Use like a build system. Level two is, you know, store the logs from that somewhere. So you can look them up later if you want to. Um, you could still get, you know, use pretty much any build system for that though. Level three now starts to be like, you know, use one, configure it really well, make sure you're operating it securely. And level four is, you know, most build systems out there today don't even support this stuff. So it's going to take a while before folks can get to it unless they want to roll their own. 
Um, it's, you know, hermetic builds with no network access and reproducibility at every step, that kind of thing. So unless you're deploying into a really sensitive environment, um, you know, most folks aren't going to need to be a level four today. Yeah, it sounds to be kind of not, not the extreme, but it'd be nice to get there, obviously. Yeah. But, you know, some of the salsa source code requirements are around verified history and providence, mm -hmm. right? So this kind of takes us down to the path of Project Six Door. Mm -hmm. You know, digital signature verifies kind of who signed the code, code has not been tampered with. Mm -hmm. When you think about those Six Doors approach, you know, what, what's different versus the kind of common code signing practices that have been taking place by vendors in the open source community? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, the Six Door project got kicked off in mid-2020, sometime around then, um, to try to figure out why digital signatures weren't more widely adopted across open source. There have been options, right? Um, you know, for decades, um, PGP has been around forever. Um, you know, PGP is set up with this web of trust model where you get to meet folks in person and exchange keys and sign each other's keys after. It can verifying. be complicated, right? It can be it's complicated. complicated. Yeah, and I think you know my theory there is you know it never really reached critical mass because you know folks are bad at key management. You know, there's a couple fundamental problems with users today, and you know, password management, key management is another one. Um, the PGP model can work if you're pretty confident folks are going to you know, have a key for decades, you know, um, that kind of time. And I can't keep my phone for decades. You know, I lose stuff constantly. Um, and I think, you know, because of that, folks lose the keys too much to really build up that critical mass of that web of trust. So it never really took off outside of kind of hardcore circles where folks care more about that kind of thing. Um, and then there's also like the kind of um, corporate model certificate authority world where you send a fax of your incorporation letter and business address on letterhead to a company and pay them a couple hundred bucks and they give you a certificate that's good for a couple of years and you get to use that to sign your code. And that's you know more widely adopted, but really only in like the walled garden ecosystems of like, you know, Windows drivers or the Apple App Store, that kind of thing. Um, where they can control it, they can issue certificates, and they can kind of force people onto these models. So looking at all of that, um, we saw a bunch of parallels to the Let's Encrypt model. Um, if you're familiar with Let's Encrypt, um, they were kind of a nonprofit public betterment group that got started up to help do certificates for the internet. Um, so we talked about, you know, touched on this a little bit earlier, but you know, five or ten years ago, it was pretty hard to get a certificate for a website. You had to do something similar. You had to find a CA, pay them some money, mm -hmm. they'd email you back and forth, and you'd get a you know .pem file, and you'd have to copy it into your Apache config and figure out how to get it into the right place to get the domain to serve. And big companies did it, and you know even then there was still embarrassing, like forgetting to renew certificates and sites going down on certain days and stuff. Um, and Let's Encrypt really wanted to figure out how to do that for the entire internet. So they built some new protocols to automate that process. They worked with the browsers to get their route trusted and showed that if it's automated and, you know, the certificates are only good for a couple of weeks and people are constantly refreshing them, then it's actually a more secure world than the old one of manual verification and credit cards and stuff. And it worked. And, you know, over a couple of years, I think TLS adoption went from like 50% to like 98% or something across the internet. So it was massive by doing it for free and automating it. So we basically copied that playbook, but for open source code signing, um, we built a free certificate authority that you can get certificates from. They're only good for a couple minutes, so you don't have to worry about keeping them or losing them or leaking them or anything like that. And it's all automated. So every time you want to get one, you verify your identity. Um, and you know the easy part was these protocols already existed. We didn't have to go make a new one like Let's Encrypt had to do. Um, it's called OpenID Connect, and you know the browser window just pops open, and you click login with Google, and you verify your email address each time. Um, so we can issue those for free and in seconds, and you don't have to manage keys. You don't have to think about it. Um, the one thing folks can hold on to over long periods of time is their email address, right? You know, you'd be kind of lost without one of those, without that same one. Um, 
MFA, all of that stuff has helped protect that over time. So we've based everything off of that email address. That also happens to be the way folks identify themselves in open source. Um, it's great because it can be as anonymous or pseudo, I can never pronounce that word, pseudonymous, pseudonymous, um, you know, as you want it to be. It can be your real name at a real company or it can be an alias. And you can have multiple of them depending on which communities you're working in. And folks do that. And it really just kind of allows you to build up a stable identity over time and make sure the code ties back to that. And what's the adoption rate? I mean, as far as in the open source projects, I mean, are you seeing an uptick? Yeah, it's been massive. Like this has only been around a year and a half, two years, something like that. And we're seeing kind of both the huge, large projects adopt it because they were struggling. So stuff like uh, Kubernetes, you know, one of the fastest projects that now signs all of their releases with it. A couple of weeks ago, Python, um, the actual wow. C Python interpreter started doing this for all of their releases. And then also we're seeing kind of the long tail support. So a lot of these package managers didn't support any signing at all. Um, some had like GPG support that wasn't really used, but some just didn't support it because there wasn't enough demand. Uh, and we're seeing uh, like GitHub just announced NPM, the node package manager will support SIG store. Um, Python supports it for PyPy as well. Ruby gems, Maven central, all these uh, open source package manager That's net, great. are now allowing it for their developers to use. Well, I'm going to switch topics. Um... You know, we had an episode last year, right, Rob, after the Log4j incident exactly. with um, Steve Springett. And, um, you know, we were one of the topics, obviously, was the Log4j incident and the, this, this topic around software supply chain. And we got to the topic of, of software bill of materials and his work with OWASP Cyclone DX. And, um, you know, that they have done a lot of work around creating this lightweight quote unquote, um, S bomb kind of framework, um, or format. And, you know, the, the objective of an S bomb, um, if, if folks haven't seen that, heard that episode is, is, is really to try to enable you to understand the components that make up a software package and be able to hopefully, um, with that greater awareness, respond faster. If there's an incident, you know, first off, understand your, your risk inherent to the components that might have vulnerabilities with, within them. Um, but also if there is some kind of incident like Log4j, you can respond faster. But Steve made an observation that, look, S-bonds alone, that really is inadequate. Uh, do, you, do you agree with him on that? And, and if so, what else do you think needs to be done? Completely. Yeah, I agree completely there. Um, you know, I started out as an SBOM skeptic. I've come around a little bit um, to, you know, they do have a couple of use cases where they're where It does they're seem really to be good. a religion, you know, as far as who <laughs> side yeah, you're on so and all that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I've come around. I, I think, um, you know, the, there have been a bunch of docs and use cases and stuff published on, you know, things SBOM can help with. And, um, you know, I've settled on, you know, two core ones, I think, you know, do make sense. And we are seeing some usage for them and, you know, the regulations and stuff asking for them are helping there. Um, you know, the big one is the inventory management piece and transparency that way. Um, and I think that's probably what Steve is referring to. Um, and that's, you know, when you buy a traditional piece of box shrink wrap software, um, a vendor gives it to you, you install it on premise on your servers, on your machines or something like that. Um, before SBOMs, before this whole world of transparency, you were kind of just at the mercy of the vendor in case something went wrong. You had to trust that they would tell you if something was wrong. Um, and you know, for the most part, vendors are well-intentioned. You know, they try to do that. They publish, you know, disclosures, um, but it's all kind of on their website. You might not be, know where to check. They might do notifications, but it's sort of like buying a physical product. Like unless you fill out all those little registration cards mm -hmm. and keep your contact information up to date, um, they might not get the email to you because you never told them your email or they forgot about it or something like that. They don't know that you're still running a seven-year-old version um, kind of thing. 
And so, especially in the federal government and a lot of these agencies where a lot of the software does still run on-prem, um, that's a pretty big problem. And Log4j was a great example of that, where anybody running anything with Java um, you know, had to go around and manually email their vendors to figure out if Log4j was in there and what version, and if they were affected, and then what to do about it. They had no idea. Um, folks didn't even you know, know what language it was in, and there were some hilarious stories on Twitter of like, you know, the, the maintainer of curl um, was getting spammed with emails from vendors demanding he respond on whether curl had log4j inside of it. Um, it's not even written in the right programming language for that, but, you know, folks were just panicking, emailing everyone they could because they had no idea. So I think in that scenario, SBOM is pretty valuable. Um, it starts to get stretched a little bit to like, you know, uh, folks asking for them for SaaS products as well. And, you know, transparency is always good. You know, tell me the SBOM for gmail.com or something like that. Sure, I want more data, but um, I'm a little more skeptical there. Like, what are you going to do with that data? You, know, you can't go patch that server. You can't turn it off. You know, the vendor's already on the hook for that. Um, so it's a little less useful in that case, in my opinion. Um, the second case where it's useful, though, is uh, purchasing decisions. We've, we've heard that one a bunch. If you're a company and you're trying to evaluate two different vendors or two different pieces of software, um, and you're trying to get an understanding of the security posture of both, and you want to you know, use, use that to inform your purchasing decision, you can ask for an SBOM. And you know, if somebody gives you one and it's written in a 30-year-old unsafe programming language with out-of-date dependencies full of known vulnerabilities or something like that, and the other one hands you a nice slim one in a modern programming language with garbage collection and up-to-date dependencies and stuff like mm -hmm. that, and that's a pretty big signal. You don't need to get down to every line and review that kind of thing. You can just kind of tell that at a high level. Um, and, and you do see that one come up too. And I think that's something a lot of folks in the government are excited about, getting that transparency. I think you know SBOM is pretty good at that known vulnerability asset inventory problem, but it doesn't solve like you know the integrity piece that we started with. Um, right, it didn't help you with the intentional you know, right. in injection of malicious code into you know your yeah. software development processes. And I think that's why I was a little skeptical at first. You know, a bunch of the de debate and discussion around SBOM came up right after the Solar Winds um, you know attack and. You know, I don't like folks weren't expecting line 37 in this SBOM to contain like malicious DLL dot, you know, package from uh, this APT kind of provenance information in there. It wouldn't have helped at all with something like that. Um, but, you know, it is part of the larger problem. So, so Dan, kind of pulling it all together, right? Sure. Are you seeing, you know, you're, you're right there in the driver's seat. You're involved in a lot of these different projects been going on for quite some time that you've invested your, your time and energy into. Do you feel we're making the right progress as it relates to software supply chain risks? I think progress is finally being made. Yeah, I think the regulations are really helping. Um, each month, each quarter, each you know week, sometimes uh, there's new announcements coming out of the federal government, um, and you know they don't write a lot of software, so it's a little bit risky, you know, having them write regulations on how software is supposed to be written. But um, they are one of the largest purchasers of it in the world, and so they have a lot more information and you know experience buying software than most folks do. And so kind of combining those two, you know, having the industry consortiums helping inform a lot of the stuff on best practices, and then having you know the government being willing to you know, put the money where their mouth is and say, we're not going to buy software unless it's been produced in a secure way, I think is driving a lot of change here. It's a classic type of you know um, uh, negative externality style, like long tail risk, where you know there's thousands of companies and probably only two or three or 10 are actually going to get hit. And hopefully their cyber insurance is going to cover that. Why should I change the way I do stuff? Um, but until somebody comes along and you know actually puts regulations in place, um, it's going to be hard to get the industry to take it seriously. But thankfully, that's happening, right? It's been 
a year and a half since the original executive order from the Biden administration. And stuff's been moving incredibly quickly for government pace. Dan, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate the insights that you shared. I think one of the main things we can take away from what's kind of been almost a catalyst, it's unfortunate, but it's reality, is what happened with SolarWinds, turning back the clock, right? Then here comes, as you just mentioned, the executive order makes things happen. The government gets involved and, you know, yeah, they are actually helping progress this forward. And your insights also at the end that you truly, again, being in a driver's seat, see the actual differences and steps being taken in the right direction. So thank you very much for coming on and sharing your insights. We really appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to have us cover a specific topic of interest, feel free to reach out to us and you can find out how in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe. This podcast was brought to you by CyberRes, a micro-focused line of business, where our mission is to deliver cyber resilience by engaging people, process, and technology to protect, detect, and evolve.